Bust and Loose Baseball, episode 84. We've got some thoughts on Barry's for Lugas column saying it is time for the learners to sell the team. Plus, we're going to be joined by one of the voices of Nats baseball who's been here since the beginning, Charlie Slows. We'll talk about everything going on between the lines with Charlie when he joins us in moments. Thanks for checking us out. Let's get it going. Episode 84 starts right now. Bustin' Loose Baseball, hosted by Grant Paulson and Toby Altizer, gives you in-depth analytics and interviews on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Now, here's your host, Grant Paulson and Toby Altizer. Grant Paulson, Toby Altizer, Boston Loose Baseball. This is episode 84. You're going to hear from Charlie Slows in just a few minutes. We'll get into Barry's Beluga's column. Toby, how are you? Doing well. I mean, watching C.J. Abrams hit home runs and enjoy watching those things fly, it's nothing better than watching that. So it's been exciting watching Nationals baseball. And, I mean, they, they struggled there for a little stretch, but looks like they're starting to figure it out again. So it's it's, it's, it's exciting watching this baseball team right now. Yeah, C.J. Abrams and K. Barrett Ruiz both have a chance to hit 20 home runs, which if you go back to last season and you look at their totals, Ruiz hit seven, Abrams, I want to say, hit two, right? Am I wrong about that? I think he hit a couple all of last year. Like, just hop in a helicopter, go up to 10,000 feet, look down at this team. How happy would you have been at the beginning of the season, Toby, if I would have told you that Ruiz and Abrams both hit 20 homers this season? I'd be thrilled. I mean, Abrams hitting 20 homers, and then you would tell me how many stolen bags he has. Like, that looks like the guy that we expected when the Nationals traded Juan Soto and he was a part of the deal. And Caber Ruiz hitting a lot of home runs. I mean, let's be honest. When they traded for this guy, it wasn't because he was a defensive catcher. This is a guy that was supposed to produce at the plate. And so it's encouraging seeing these guys show you some of that potential. And the thing is, you know, we don't want to be naive about it. We still need them to take another step. You know, they're growing. We still need to take that next step so that they can be, you know, really good ball players for a team, hopefully, that's contending soon. But they're taking steps, and that's encouraging. Yeah, league average OPS has been around 720. Abrams is now up over 730. Good sign. Two home runs, three batted in yesterday. Home runs, number 17 and 18. Kbert Ruiz, by the way, hit his 20th double yesterday. As part of a two-hit game, he's now a tick over league average and OPS as well. Both of them are hitting over 250, so the offense is coming along. Abrams obviously playing a premium defensive position with athleticism and elite traits. You know, his first home run was 105 off the bat and traveled 417. His second home run uh, was 111 off the bat and and was more of a just a low line drive that went 383 with a 21 degree launch angle, but. Awesome to see him have a two-homer game. His power is just so legit, by the way. Like, I, I don't know that there's, a you know, he's. I don't think he's ever going to hit 30 home runs, right? But it's it's got that Trey Turner look to it where, like, when he hits them, they go a long way. And I know it doesn't work this way, but there's a lot of 400, 395-feet homers, second-deck home runs. Like, isn't that indicative to you that there's more in the tank? I mean, he... It's not like they're wall scrapers or he's fisting, you know, the balls over the wall like Wilmer Defoe style. Like this dude hits bolts. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing that's crazy is when you look at his average exit velo, it's not necessarily the most encouraging thing you've ever seen. His average exit velo is 87.1, which is in the 15th percentile. 
But then you list off, he's hitting a ball 111 off the bat, 107 off the bat. There's definitely something in there. So hopefully they can find a way that he can barrel balls more often because he has legit power. Like if you watch his batting practice, he has legit power just like a lot of guys. He's not the elite power like a Bryce Harper, but he can still hit the ball pretty well. So maybe it's something with the swing or just his approach at the plate because he's a leadoff guy. I don't know. But sometimes when he just lets loose on a ball and he can X, you can see that he's got a little bit in there. So I think he's got 20 home run power. Obviously, we're seeing that this year, but I think that's something that's consistent. I don't know if it's 30 like you're saying, but I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he continues to find a way to barrel the ball if he sneaks closer to 25 throughout his career because he can run into him. He's got that in his he's got that in his game. Yeah, and what he's done this year is proved that he could be like a 2050 guy. Well, if you're a 20 home or 50 steal guy, and there might even be more in the tank than 50 steals with today's rules in baseball. But if he's a 2050 guy with uh, some of the defense that I think eventually he'll be able to play based on, as we we're talking about, the physical tools and the traits and his propensity to get the balls that other guys can't, like that is a star. So exciting times seeing him hopefully finish the season strong. Uh, real quick before we get to Charlie and talk about everything going on with this team, I did want to bring up Barry's for Lucas column in the post. The best thing the learners can do for the Nationals is sell. He started his column by pointing out the fiasco with Strasburg, one of the, the lines in their statement. Steven Strasburg is and always will be an important part of the Washington Nationals franchise. Learner's statement began, we support him in any decision he makes and we'll ensure that he receives what is due to him. And then Barry wrote, that is really where it should have ended, but it wasn't. And then he goes into how they've handled this and what's going on. And it's kind of a microcosm of a much larger issue and a bigger picture deal right now with the learners. Uh, I have been wanting them to sell for some time. I think that is the best outcome for the team. But it's really, for me, I guess, bigger picture. It's kind of an Esser all get off the pot situation. If you're going to be in, then you got to be in. And you got to spend and care and invest and stop cutting front office positions and scouting positions or just sell the team. I think the problem is, based on what I can gather, if you saw the show Succession, is like we've got a major fight going on within the family where if I had to guess, like Mark Lerner probably would prefer to keep running the team his own way. And you've got other members of the family, you know, his brother-in-law who's married to one of his sisters, this guy, uh, Ed Cohen, who possibly uh, is constantly fighting with him and, and having, you know, different ideas on what should be happening. So it seems to me like, and, and this is my, speculation right this is my hypothesis connecting dots based on conversations and things uh th that seems to be what's going on yeah i mean i'm not as crazy about them having to sell but i mean the way that barry puts it out i think it's very well said i mean the way that all this stuff has happened with strasburg is just unfortunate grant because obviously it puts the learners in a bad light but it also puts steven strasburg in a bad light and that shouldn't be the case like this is a guy that's just retiring because Obviously, he's had some issues with the nerves and everything in his arm. Like He's done pitching. Like I think we understand that. And the fact that he's kind of getting dragged through all of this is kind of unfortunate. But it's also crazy, too, just to see how this whole process has played out. You know, there was a tweet from Jim Bowden that was eventually deleted, basically saying that the commissioner's office had stepped in and said, you can't just guarantee the rest of this thing. It sets a bad precedent. And like we discussed off air. That's something that 
they can suggest that, but if the learners want it, they could just blow through the stop sign. You know, they could just do whatever they want. And if they totally. ultimately decided they could pay it. And so can I go just, back real quick. I just want to, before we bring Charlie on, I want to get something out of the way. You sure. had said you started your answer by saying um, like, you're not as adamant as I am that you'd prefer them to sell. Correct. Why not? Can you explain that? I still believe that there's a way that they would consider spending. I think that with you look at the payroll going forward and how low it is once Corbin comes off the books and they settle this Strasburg stuff, you know, there's going to be such little invested in the payroll that I think that they would end up finding a way to spend a little bit. Now, it's not going to be maybe Scherzer-esque, you know, and spending all that cash, but I think that there's a way. But it is concerning, Grant, because how can I honestly say that when – you just had a bunch of scouts fired. You just had a bunch of scouting staff removed. And we'll see whether they end up filling those positions or not. But the fact that we're even questioning that gives you a little hesitation that they're even going to consider filling those spots. And if that's the case, then I can have this you know, presupposition that they're going to pay. But if they're not even going to pay for scouts, then why would I think that they're going to go sign free agents for $10 million a year? Yeah, and that's where I'm at. Like, even if they do spend a little bit of money, I'm not sure that they're ever going to get back into the top 10 in payroll. Like, it's not a great time moving forward. It doesn't look like for commercial real estate, which is where they made their money. But on top of that, I'm not trying to get into their pockets. And I have reverence and respect for them in a way that I think, you know, other fans need to find, you know, because I think they're being more dismissive and angry toward ownership, which I totally get. Like, right now, they deserve it. But... You also have to remember that there was a World Series one and they did spend on Max Scherzer and they did go out and get Jason Worth. And there was a time where they did the things maybe not always the right way behind the scenes, but they at least acquired talent at a high level uh, by spending money. But I guess my point either to you or anybody else who says that, that their preference or you know their thought is that maybe they, they'll stay and just spend. I feel like we now know there's dysfunction, though. Like it's True. pretty clear yeah. at this point whether they spend or they don't. You know, Jerry Jones spends. It's a dysfunctional outfit. Um, you know, you, you could run through a bunch of ownership groups. Like we're now seeing what it looks like with a, a clean operation and, you know, hope with the commanders and Josh Harris kind of doing it the right way. Um, but I think, I don't know, I, with this week and the Strasburg thing and, and the, the cutting of scouts and the Mike Rizzo contract taking forever, like it's just pretty obvious to me whether they spend or they don't, this is dysfunctional. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, and that's something that you'd hope that if they were to stick around, they could get cleaned up, whether it's the communication aspect of things or whatever it is. I mean, let's be honest with the Rizzo thing. The thing that's holding it back is either a couple of years or a couple of million dollars. It's not anything that's ginormous that's, you know, like a negotiation where you're arguing over tens and $20 million because it's a contract for a player. It's a player... It's a contract for a general manager. It's a couple of years. It's a couple million dollars. And yet we're still waiting on that extension. That's something that ownership has direct correlation with. You know, something with a player, they're dealing with an agent. They're, with a general manager, it's direct correlation to the ownership because they're working directly with each other. So I understand what you're saying. And I'm not one that's going to sit here and defend them because, you know, I think they've done enough that shows you that they need to probably move on. But at the same point, I'm not as adamant about it, but I'm not also going to sit here and defend them. I'm not going to be like one of these people I've seen on Twitter that has come to their back and basically said, 
you know, we've heard you talk about it, Grant, and some others talk about them selling and not laying out reasons. There are reasons, you know, not not investing the money necessary to put a winning product on the field. And it has nothing to do with the players, like I was saying. Like, if they're just going to let this scouting staff go and Mike Rizzo ends up coming back and he's fighting behind the eight ball again, like, that's that's not ideal. This is a team that should be going forward. Now's not the time to cut on scouting. You know, like this is a team that still needs some of that young talent to bolster this team going forward. Now's not the time to make some budget cuts on those things. And they're in a lucky spot where they're not going to have to pay a whole lot for players because – a lot of these guys haven't even hit arbitration yet. But at the same point, that's not the time when you decide, oh, yeah, let's go cheap everywhere else. So hopefully, if they do stick around, they decide to spend some money. And if not, get this thing done as quickly as possible. And again, the issue probably being this probably would have been sold if we could figure out this mass and dispute, honestly. Yeah, Barry wrote in the post this week, whatever, this will get worked out in reference to Strasburg. It's just a symptom anyway for this organization to truly get back on track. The learners really need to sell, to be clear. This isn't a Dan Snyder situation in the NFL. No evidence of disgusting underlying workplace culture, though the Nats may be headed for fourth uh, straight last place finish in the National League East. The learners oversaw both of the franchise's original build from MLB-owned island to misfit toys to an annual contender and finally a World Series champion. And again, they deserve credit for that. Uh, but he goes on to basically say, you know, Ted Lerner passed away in February at 97. He was in charge. He ran the show. He was at the head of the table. And since he passed away, it just seems like things have been chaotic and frenetic and hectic and run less efficiently. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just well said. I mean, it's it hasn't been as well run. Like you said, I think the big issue here now becomes – the dysfunction. I mean, obviously you need to spend the cash. That's probably number one, but if there's dysfunction in the organization, then that's a problem. So, I mean, it's just something that needs to be addressed. Whether the learners are going to stick around, they need to make a clear statement that they're going to do what's necessary to win baseball games, or if they're going to sell, they need to do that soon as well, because this is a, this is a baseball team that's on the rise. And now's not the time to be dealing with all the behind the scenes stuff. Zoom. We'll have much more on this as we go in the days ahead, I'm sure. But Nats fans want to hear about everything going on between the lines with this team. So let's do that. Let's welcome in Charlie Slows, one of the voices of Nationals baseball. He calls games with Dave Jagler each and every night. You can hear those games on 106.7, the fan locally and all over the Nationals radio network. Charlie, why don't we start with C.J. Abrams? A year ago, it's just a couple of homers. He had that many in a game last night, and he's now got 18, cruising toward 20. Massive leap for him, both with his power and as a base stealer this year. Very encouraging, I would think. Yeah, I mean, the two home runs he hit last year were with San Diego, so we never saw him hit a home run with the Nationals in the almost uh, two months that he played for them last year. So, yeah, I mean, he hits he hits bombs in batting practice, so we always see that, and, you know, they don't – they don't want him to try and hit home runs. It's kind of the same approach they have for a lot of their guys. They like him, you know, stay in the middle of the field, try and hit line drives, hard ground balls. But, you know, Dave and I were talking about this uh, on the broadcast because he had a home run off a changeup last night. And and of his 18 home runs, seven have been off changeups. 
So he had the one game where, you know, with the Phillies, you're facing a guy who throws changeups through him seven in a row, and he had a home run and a changeup. So he, this is a guy that, if he expects it, can sit changeup and hit home runs a lot. Most guys are not going to be doing that. When we were playing the Phillies, that's when that happened. And uh, Howie Kendrick, the former national 2019 world champ, two of the I remember that guy. <laughs> two of the biggest home runs in Nationals history. Uh, it, it pains us to see him in a Phillies uniform as a special no assistant, but. Uh, I was talking with him the next day, and he said, yeah, I'd like him not to swing for home runs and look for change-ups. He goes, but if I got seven in a row, I would be looking for a change-up too. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it, he's shown ability to do a lot of different things, and I think a lot of what we've seen coincides with when they decided to put him in the leadoff spot. It's almost he was batting in front of Lane Thomas. If you looked at 9-1, he was 9 and Thomas was 1. He's still batting in front of him at 1-2. But it was like all of a sudden, chest out, I'm, I'm a leadoff batter, not a nine hitter anymore. And, you know, the green light to steal bases. And he's shown a lot of the game that everybody thought that that he could have. And, you know, cringe when you keep looking at his birthday and he still hasn't turned 23. Well, and that's what I was going to ask you, Charlie. You're around this team every single day. Was there a noticeable difference when he got moved to the leadoff spot? Was there a, more confidence there? Like what changed for him? Well, I it just the approach of being in the leadoff spot, you know, you're, you're a table setter, get on base any way you can. And then all of a sudden, you know, he was better at the plate. He was better in the field. And then you're in front of Lane Thomas and, and the other guys, who can, instead of being a guy in the number nine spot trying to drive in who's ever in front of you, I don't think he viewed himself the same way as a hitter in that spot. And maybe got more fastballs, too, at the top of the order, so much so that they could see he could hit the fastball. They started throwing him more off speed, and he's been able to adjust to that. You know, there, there are periods where uh, he gets a little chase happy, and when that happens, the strikeouts go up and you get some weaker contact. But that's an issue for every every young player or even every player if you're not, you know, uh, an elite player who has the ability to lay off anything that's just barely off the plate. Uh, and that will, you know, all these things will come for him. Again, we keep thinking that he's only 22 and what he would show us this year. He's exceeded, I think, all expectations at, at this point. And the, the sky's the limit. I mean, we could be looking at a, at a potential, you know, star player for a long time. Yeah, it's very exciting. We started the show talking about you guys calling the couple of homers and his success in game one against the Pirates. The other of the guys, though, that we were referencing was Kbert Ruiz because he also is going to very likely hit 20 home runs this season after hitting just seven last year. His slug is up from a season ago where he was slugging 360 to now slugging over 410. And while it's been, I think, a really bad year analytically, defensively, if you look at like fielding run value and uh, some of the things like framing and pop time and all that stuff, throwing runners out. It's kind of a mess, and he's got a lot of work to do. What a welcome sight it's been to see the power he's brought at the catching position. Do you feel like that's sustainable? And, and then also two-parter, like what is the org telling you? What are you hearing about uh, him defensively and where they want to see him make strides? Well, you know, he's played a lot and and uh, more than he's ever played in a season, and they've tried to rest him. But because he's hit so well and keep him in the lineup, even as a DH on what would probably be off days a lot of the time because Riley Adams was doing so well against left-handed pitching. And uh, last year, uh, you probably would they would look for those spots to not play K-Bird and play Riley Adams when you have the day game after a night game or know that uh, there was a certain pitcher they wanted him to face the night before or the day after. So they would they would move that day off to a night off instead of a day off. 
but that you know this year he's hit over 300 right-handed <laughs> that was that was a big progression still you know most of the power comes from the other side he's only hit one home run right-handed and ironically that was against the Dodgers at Dodger Stadium his old club um you know pop time has been something difficult and I think framing you know could change in in the next couple of years the Nationals have been more about their pitchers of the minor leagues just put the glove in the middle of the plate set a target for the pitcher because you know the the 17 inches of the plate wide and guys trying to hit corners if you set up on the corner and and they you know it's very hard for them to hit that spot anyway they they prefer that you just set up in the middle of the plate and let the pitchers pitch move and then you catch it the other thing is nationals is pitching staff haven't been great at holding runners so you know pop time hasn't been as important because the catcher virtually hasn't a lot of time virtually has no chance to throw the runner out uh so you know that's a big difference with the pitch clock and the amount of times you could throw over certainly you can improve your pop time we've seen other catchers some young catchers come up with some great pop times but you know it's very rare that you see any catcher now with good numbers throwing out base runners and lane thomas this year has really had a breakout season he's someone that was talked a lot around the trade deadline about a possible trade piece the nationals end up holding on to him is he something that he can continue to be this guy going forward and maybe be an everyday right fielder? Is he more of a fourth outfielder once some of these younger guys coming up? Do you think that Lane Thomas can continue doing what he's done this year? You know, I I would be a guy who had, had his doubts after he came over from St. Louis. He'd never really gotten a chance to play every day there. And, you know, we saw at times when he came over playing center field, he struggled going back on balls, particularly if he had to make a play at the fence. So that was somewhat of a negative for him. Um, he's really improved with that. They've worked on that with him. Uh, and, and he's certainly a better than adequate right fielder, uh, 15 outfield assists leading the major leagues. He's usually pretty accurate with his throws, uh, offensively, you know, there are strikeouts, but he provides some power. Uh, he drives in runs. Uh, he's a guy who really looks to stay on fastballs. That's what they want him to do. Don't let good fastballs get by you. Um, and, you know, he could be a guy when you have some of these younger players to get here, you know, you need some guys with some big league experience to bring him along, you know, and at 28, he's, you know, we think of him as a young guy, but he, he's going to be a, a guy in his prime and a, a veteran when some of these young guys get here. And what, what you don't know about any of the young prospects, not everyone comes up and succeeds right away at this level. So uh, it's really hard to predict when they when they make that jump with, you know, some of the best talent in the organization now at double A, uh, whether they whether they're able to make a big adjustment and have success right away in the major league. Sometimes you have initial success and then teams scout you and catch up on you and you've got to go through some periods of struggles. And that's where those veteran players are big help to help you get through those times. So Look I could at players him, I could see him being here. Yeah, me too. Uh, I was wrong about him. I, I just, when you get acquired for John Lester at the end of his career straight <laughs> up, I've got certain expectations. And you becoming an 800 OPS everyday player who plays in an all-star level, isn't one of them. That may go down as one of Rizzo's best trades. And he's made right. some phenomenal trades. I mean, if you look at his, you, you can pick nits on the Nationals draft history or their uh, you know player development over the years or whatever. You cannot argue with the trade history in this organization. <laughs> From Denard Span coming over uh, for Alex Meyer to the Doug Fister trade. I mean, there, I, I could rattle off 15 of them, but this is the latest, greatest trade for Rizzo. Maybe not on the, the trade turner Joe Ross for Steven Souza level, but, man, is it pretty good. You, you get Lester out of here. 
who couldn't put together four good innings and you go get Lane Thomas controllable for years, that's pretty massive. Well, if you talk to Lane, uh, he won't say that's the only trade that the Cardinals uh, might have gambled on trading away a young outfield prospect. Let's see. There's a guy in Tampa Bay. Yeah. Uh, there's a guy in Randy Texas. Randy Arozarena. Adolis yeah. Garcia. Garcia. And yeah. he, he goes, that was the AAA Memphis outfield that he played in a few years back. And look at where they all are now. I think I have this right. I, I looked this up with a, a guy who does a bunch of stats this week. Um, 25 homers, 20 steals, which is what he's on pace to do this year. I don't think Turner ever did that, uh, which is weird. But Desmond in 2012 at 25 and 21. And then Soriano in 06, 46 and 41, went 40-40. So he'd be the third Nat ever to have 25 homers and 20 steals. It's a pretty impressive year. Yeah, I got to look. I thought I thought Turner was 2020, but uh, we'll, we'll double check on that. He's certainly going to be now <laughs> with the Phillies <laughs> with the surge that – He's been on over the past month is unbelievable. But, you know, you look at Abrams, could be 2040. I mean, when you talk about Soriano's 2006 year, people forget he was 40, 40, 40 when you throw in his doubles. So Trey, believe it or not, he didn't do He had the, the year in 2021 where he got traded. He got to 28 homers with 32 steals. But many of those came with the Dodgers. So in Washington that year. He had 18 homers and 21 steals. So he never had 25. In fact, he didn't even get to 20, uh, but he never had 25 and 20. So Lane Thomas is the third guy to do it in Nats history. If if he gets a few more steals. Right. Let's which flip is, over to the pitch. Pretty impressive. Let's flip over to pitching side of things. Mackenzie Gore goes to the IL with the blister issue. His year is probably done, I would expect. I don't think they're going to bring him back for one more start. How would you characterize his season seeing him pitch every single, every fifth day? Some ups and downs. I mean, certainly, you know, there are times uh, where command issues for everybody, too many walks at times. Uh, but then, you know, the ability when he gets in trouble, if he needs strikeouts, he, he can beat you in the strike zone. You know, the stuff is terrific. Uh, I, I look at this as his rookie year. If you think about it then, then it's pretty good because he didn't pitch much for San Diego last year and didn't pitch at all for the nationals after the trade. And so I think this is, you know, first time going through probably like a lot of the pitchers reaching a fatigue point uh, in the year. So it's almost like the, you know, the blister comes at a time when they were considering shutting him down for the season. So it's almost a convenience in that term because it helps them make the decision. And yeah, he'd be eligible to come back for maybe one start in the last week of the season so how much time he's down and can't throw here with a blister to heal, do you ramp up again to do that? Uh, is it worth it for a start or for a relief appearance? Or do you just, you know, call it a season? I think either way, uh, you're fine and, and look forward to what he can do next year. Really, you know, hone in on some things about, you know, controlling his emotions when he's out there and uh, not letting things get to him and work, you know, on, on making the next pitch after you're, you don't get the call that you want or you don't get the result that you want. From a sheer stuff perspective, he he to me looks like the potential frontline guy here, right? He yeah. he could be your one or your two, probably ideally a two if you spend on an ace or something like that. But he could pitch toward the front of a rotation. Uh, Josiah Gray's stuff to me is more mid rotation. Ideally, he's a three, a four for them, something like that. Having said that, he threw really well in the first half. He made the All Star team. He's a guy that I root for personally. I find him to be just an awesome dude and. 
He's involved in the community. Does a lot of stuff over at the Nats Youth Academy. But, Charlie, it has been an ugly second half for Josiah Gray, and, and you kind of keep waiting here for just him to turn in a clean, good quality start that you can feel good about. And uh, we're still waiting. ERA is up around six over his last nine outings, 40 innings. Average against is almost identical to the first half of the season, but he's just walking so many guys. The home run rate's up from where it was when it really dropped off substantially in the first half as well. Uh, what do you make of his second half? Should, should we be worried, or do you think it's just a rough stretch? What's your view here? I think for Josiah, no one's talked about it, but I think he's tired also. I, I think he got to a certain point. Uh, fatigue was cause of maybe, you know, getting out of sync his mechanics again and flying open, which leads to, you know, lesser command of his fastball and then less confidence to throw the fastball and then throwing so many more of his his sliders, his, his curveball, his sweeper slider version. Uh, he doesn't throw the change up much. They'd like him to throw it more. But you got to have a fastball to, to make all that stuff work off of. And that's what's really uh, become an issue with him. So I think, you know, they're going to have to start all over again with his mechanics and get him back right to where he can command the fastball. Because when he can throw a mid-90s fastball, that's legit to have the other pitches to work off of that fastball. But the problem you have is when the opposing hitters know you're not going to throw it, and those other pitches are, you know, swing and miss pitches that aren't necessarily always for strikes. They're not going to swing at them. And then suddenly you're behind in counts and you got to lay one in there. So Jake Irvin has been a nice revelation this year as well, because when he got called up, Grant and I were talking on the podcast saying maybe he makes a couple spot starts to probably end up being a bullpen guy. And he's looked like a legit guy that can stick in the back end of the rotation. What are your thoughts been on Jake Irvin? I say don't sleep on him at the back of the rotation. I think he's I think he's more than that with his maturity. If he could really hone in, add another pitch, because he, his changeup's been very effective, his command is very good, uh, he can add and subtract on his fastball, um, he's very mature. I mean, we were talking the other day after his six-inning performance against the Dodgers, allowing one run. I said, what do you think? He said, that was a ch- I took that as a challenge because my first start against them because he faced them back in May wasn't as good. He goes, but if you want to be the best, you got to beat the best. <laughs> I really liked his, his attitude of how he was disappointed that Mookie Betts wasn't in the lineup. He wanted <laughs> to face Betts again and try and get him out. And, you know, that's just the mature attitude that he brings as a 26-year-old rookie. He's older than the other guys. He's more mature than the other guys. He understands what he's trying to do, and I think, you know, if you can add a pitch to get better, I think he's more than just the guy at the back of the rotation. I, I think he has a chance to be better than that. And to that point, Charlie, like there are other guys like that in the system too. Irvin was not a highly regarded prospect. We think so much about these prospect rankings, and we talk on this podcast every week about Dylan Cruz, James Wood, Brady House, Elijah Green, Dalen Lyle, Yoani Morales, all those guys, Robert Hassel. But the fact is, next year you'll get Cavalli back, who's a household name. He'll be in the middle of the rotation, clearly. But there's a lot of guys like Jake Irvin who I think might end up, uh, and it, not all of them will, but potentially outkicking their coverage and becoming decent major leaguers. Like Mitchell Parker's had a really nice run here in AA. I know they're high on him. They think he could be a good starter. Uh, a similar player on the, you know, he's right handed, uh, you know, uh, he's left handed, but. Uh, DJ Hers, left-handed pitcher, who similarly in the same rotation is another guy who's, you know, if he cuts down on walks and throws strikes, like both of those guys have a chance to be major league starting pitchers that help. 
Jackson Rutledge on the verge of the major leagues has been at double and triple A and has a sub four ERA this year, former first round pick. Like these guys aren't high end prospects that get talked about nationally, but you see it with Jake Irvin. Like not everyone's going to be Grayson Rodriguez or, you know, Clayton Kershaw come up with all the fanfare with everyone watching their first start. It doesn't mean you can't become a valuable innings eating horse middle of back end of a rotation and help an organization out. Yeah. And sometimes the guy who's that hot prospect doesn't turn out to be who you think he is. And the Jake Irvin does. And then you're yeah. saying, well, he's no, you're saying that guy's no Jake Irvin <laughs> down the road. <laughs> but it'll be interesting if we see, you know, the Nationals have to uh, put a starter in there this week, being with Gore on the injured list. Jackson Rutledge was pulled from his start a few days ago, the same day that Gore uh, left early with the blister issue again. And uh, he's been working on the same day really, as uh, as Jake Irvin for over the past month. So we thought that if Irvin got shut down in innings limit because he's, you know, first full year back from Tommy John, that it might be Rutledge. But we might be Rutledge anyway this week here in uh, Pittsburgh. So we'll see. What day is the opening? Uh, Wednesday. We have a Doan uh, Tuesday, an opening Wednesday, and then uh, Gray's supposed to pitch in the finale on Thursday here in Pittsburgh. So that'll be pretty interesting if Rutledge gets the chance you know the one thing you look at is triple a numbers and I think don't look at the walk numbers something like 30 in less than 50 innings because everyone who's gone to triple a has had an issue because of the automated strike zone not being as accurate and there's been stories out now that they've made an adjustment to it because the the zone was smaller than what umpires would call and so everybody would come up from double a to triple a you know from every ball club all of a sudden everybody's walking players left and right so i i think the walk numbers are somewhat inflated number for almost everybody you look at at triple a that that has been there all year because of the the automated strike zone so i want to look at this team in general because we talk about davy martinez got the contract extension i don't think he gets enough credit for how good of a manager he is in the clubhouse and keeping the guys motivated even in a season where the expectations weren't super high i think they've exceeded those expectations this year What's the vibe been around this team? Because all season they've really been scrappy. It wasn't necessarily leading to wins early, and then they started winning some ball games and looked really good coming out of the All-Star break. But what's been the vibe around this clubhouse all year long? Well, I mean, they come to play. There's energy all the time from from especially the bench guys, you know, guys who started out on the bench like Vargas and uh, Michael Chavis. And, you know, a bunch of young guys also getting a chance to play in the big leagues for the first time. So they always bring energy. And you never see a Nationals player not run out of ground ball. You see other teams, guys don't do it. And the Nationals dugout, especially when they're at home and they're in the first base dugout, be yelling, run that ball out. Talk about, they're yelling at players (laughs) of the other team. Touch first base, touch first base. And other teams have noted this. Opposing managers have told Davey, we see what you're doing over there. And we like it. And, you know, I, I think it's something that other managers say, yeah, this is what I, I want. You know, they're saying, look, look at those guys over there, you know, the, as hard as they play and come prepared. And uh, it's it's been nice. I mean, last year, especially first half of the year was about the, you know, it's been, it, it had been a while since Dave and I watched baseball like that every day. You didn't see glimmers. You didn't see a lot of hope there with what you were looking at on the field. And then, you know, we saw some of it in the second half, even, you know, after the trade deadline and seeing some of the young guys get here. But this year, you see what it can be. You know, when we started this, started out this this interview talking about C.J. Abrams, I mean, just go right from there. And, you know, 
you're seeing light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, this this thing with the players they have coming has a real chance to turn faster than anybody uh, would have thought when you looked at where they were at the beginning of last year. When you talked to Mike Rizzo in the first half of the year, he say to me, he goes, I know, Charlie, he goes, the big league level, we're bad. He goes, we're really bad. He goes, but it's not going to be this way for long. And, you know, who would look back now at this point, more, more than a year removed, with the emotion that was involved in it, with the way the first half of the year went, and they made an offer to Soto, and, you know, he didn't take the offer, and they traded Soto. And, you know, what the, what the demoralization must have been like for the fan base at that moment and, you know, when you're in the position of Mike Rizzo and, you know, whatever the reasons he has to deal with financially, uh, you know, and, and again, one guy making that much money handcuffs you doing a lot of other things. Uh, you know, when, you know, at, at some point that's going to get San Diego with all those big contracts, unless you've got an owner that just has no limit to what he can spend. But, you know, in the end, you, we're going to look back and if, if they hit on all of these players that you got from Soto and even now with just two of them in the big leagues, um, that 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 looks like an, a, a, the the best thing you could have done for the organization was make that yeah. trade. Yeah, I I think basically just the if Gore and Abrams pan out to your point, it's it's a win potentially, uh, based on what would lie ahead with Soto going to free agency and where they were in the build. But then you add in Hassel and Susana and the possibilities therein, and James Wood. Uh, it looks like he's going to be a star. So. Uh, I mean, Wood is is obviously the game changer. I don't know if you get much out of Susana other than maybe the bullpen. Hassel had a really brutal year in the minor leagues for the most part, so that the arrow is trending down. But let's say you get nothing out of those two, and, and I don't think that's the case. I think both will help them at the major league level for a while. But if it's just the other three, I'll do that deal every single time. Pretty amazing. I'm just glad you and Dave get to call some wins every now and then. Charlie, thank you so <laughs> yeah. much for hopping on with us, buddy. We appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie. You got it. It, it. We're excited. I mean, we're excited about what's to come. There, you know, there's so many young players in the organization now uh, that you see the light at the end of the tunnel that are coming. And, uh, you know, at some point they're going to have to make decisions on who gets to play and maybe who becomes part of trades to get something else to help you, you know, take that next step over the top once again. Fun to think about. Make sure you're listening to Charlie and Dave every game on the Nats radio network locally in the D.C. area. If you're listening to the pod on 106.7 The Fan. You're the best, Charlie. Thanks, bud. You got it, guys. That was Charlie Slows, one of the voices of Nationals Baseball with Dave Jagler. Of course, you got to check out all those games. They do a great job not only calling the action, but they've got a great report. Charlie's been with the club since day one. Dave's been with the team since season number two. And, Toby, I listen to uh, radio baseball constantly. This is like a, you know, just one of my hobbies, passions, so to speak. Uh, we're lucky here. There's a lot of broadcasts no around the country that are not at the level that the Nationals is. It's it's probably top five to ten in all of baseball, and uh, we're spoiled in that way because there, are, you know, teams have just not spent like they used to on their broadcasts, and you can tell. Yeah, I mean, just listening to Charlie and Dave every single day, it's it makes you realize how good of a broadcast the Nationals have with the radio. It's just so much fun to listen to those guys describe the action and. Like you said, I mean, they have a great rapport. They have great radio voices. They understand what's going on, and it's awesome to listen to those guys. I listen to them probably more than I actually watch the the games, honestly, because I, 
I, or at least the the best is when you can. When I was in Milwaukee, Grant, the best was I was able to watch MLB TV and have the Masson broadcast and watch it and listen with Charlie and Dave. Right. And I don't think it gets better than that. No, that's pretty strong. Boston Loose Baseball episode 84 is in the books. Big thanks to all of you for checking us out and to Charlie for joining us. We're back at it later this week.